Often, victory over sin comes little by little. Uh, I don't know about you, but I want to have total victory over all of my sins right away. Uh, we, we all want to be all better right away, don't we? I remember um, riding my bike as fast as I could down a hill when I was uh, six or seven years old. I lost control. The wheel turned. I did not. Uh, I went over my handlebars and I scraped my knees and hands and elbows. And needless to say, there was blood, uh, lots of it. There were tears. Uh, That doesn't surprise many of you. There were tears, uh, lots of them. Um, My friends um, brought me to my mom, uh, who was a very skilled emergency room nurse. Uh, She was slowly and carefully cleaning my wounds out, and the pain uh, was unrelenting. I I kept crying, Mom, this, this hurts. This hurts. And she kept telling me it was going to be okay, she'll get me cleaned up, and that I'd feel better soon. Well, that wasn't going to cut it for me. Uh, I wanted to be better, all better, right away. And I was in pain, and I cried out, Mom, this, this hurts. You're a nurse. Do something. And I, I thought she could fix it all right away. Uh, but that's not how it works, is it? Uh, I, I remember that it took many days of of carefully pulling clothes over wounds. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, uh, uncomfortable because I'd kind of accidentally agitated a wound. I wasn't all better right away, but I wanted to be. Healing takes time. Uh, it, It takes painful medical care on the front end, and it takes deliberate, methodical, and wise care until all that remains are the scars. Victory over sin for believers in Jesus Christ is not unlike that process of healing and wound care. Uh, Like wounds, our sins have to be exposed. They have to be cleaned out, sometimes painfully so. And the medicine of Jesus' love displayed in His death and resurrection has to be continually applied by the Holy Spirit. As we study Deuteronomy chapter 7 this morning, we are told that the people of Israel are to clear out and to clean out the land of Canaan from idolatry and from idolatrous people. As we think about Israel being told to engage in warfare against the peoples of the land, we, the the New Testament people of God, Christians, we need to think carefully about how we are to clear out and clean out sin from our lives. This process of of sanctification, of being healed of our sin, will not end in this life. It's a progressive work, as we confessed just a few minutes ago. But this process, this process of sanctification, will draw us nearer to the great physician who reveals his love to us and for us. In fact, it is his love and power that empowers us and empowers our love. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, you should be able to find the passage beginning uh, at the bottom of the page of 151. Page 151. The book of Deuteronomy is situated in a pivotal place in Israel's history. God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. He has led them through the wilderness for the last 40 years. And now they are preparing to enter the promised land of Canaan. 
Deuteronomy is a book that contains Moses' last words. Moses' last words are, are nothing less than God's instructions for how the people of Israel are to live uh, before God once they settle in the promised land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the people of Israel are called to love God with an unwavering diligence and devotion because of who they are, those chosen by God and precious in His sight. God mandates that Israel clear out and clean out the nations. And the motivation for this mandate is rooted in the truth that God has chosen them to be His holy people. The, the means by which they accomplish this is His power. So if you're taking notes this morning, we'll study Deuteronomy chapter 7 under three headings. The mandate, the motivation, and the means. And it's my prayer that as we look into God's word this morning, we would be confronted by this mandate to put sin to death in our lives. That we would be comforted and encouraged by God's motivating love. And that we would be confident of God's strength and power to defeat sin. I pray that God's love would empower our love. Let's begin with our first point, the mandate. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram. And burn their carved images with fire. God's mandate that the people of Israel destroy the nations is applicable to our lives because of the New Testament mandate we have in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, and Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to put sin to death. Christians do not wage war against flesh and blood like Israel did, but we do wage war against our sin and the devil, and that is our mandate. But first, let's consider Israel's mandate that we see here. In verse 1, we're once again reminded that God's promises to give His people a promised land will be fulfilled. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when, Moses once again tells the people of Israel. It's based upon the foundation of this coming certainty that God gives the people of Israel a mandate. The mandate is simply this, destroy them all. Isn't that what the middle and the end of verse 2 communicates? You must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. What God is requiring of Israel is to prosecute a holy war. This mandate is remarkable in some respects. At this point in time, the population of Israel may be somewhere between 1 and 2 million people. And my guess is that that number is closer to 2 million people given the census it's been taken in Numbers chapter 26. That census reveals that there were over 600,000 men, 20 years old and up, ready for war. 
That's to say nothing of the number of women and children in Israel. Even if we take kind of a, a conservative estimate and conclude that the population of Israel is somewhere around one million people, we need to realize that what God is commanding here is he's commanding Israel to completely destroy seven nations, all of whom are stronger and more numerous than Israel. You can see that at the end of verse 1. If we take the most conservative number, then what becomes plain is that God is mandating, he's ordering, he is commanding Israel to totally destroy more than 7 million people. This command from God has led many to reject Christianity. It is this kind of command which famously led Richard Dawkins to write the following in his book, The God Delusion. Quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasticist, capriciously malevolent bully. Those words from Dawkins are, are blasphemous. And still, if we're honest about what we've read in Deuteronomy 7, about the destruction of these nations, we can understand why Richard Dawkins and others might feel the way they do about God. To be clear, Dawkins misunderstands the Old Testament. He misunderstands this command from God. But I suspect that Dawkins is not alone in his misunderstanding. We likely have friends and family members who have this misunderstanding. Maybe you are here this morning and Dawkins' understanding of God is, is your understanding of God. Maybe you're here wondering how this mandate from God makes sense. Maybe you wonder how this command could be just. Maybe you're asking, how is this loving? There are four basic things that we need to understand. First, this is our Father's world. The Bible clearly reveals that God made this world and everything in it. The Bible reveals that God is the author of all things, and therefore He has authority over all things. That is the message of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first two chapters in the Bible. Part of Dawkins' pitfall, and, and perhaps your, your pitfall, may be an unwillingness to read the Bible on its own terms. If there is to be an attempt at a true and genuine understanding of this mandate, then we have to be willing to allow the Bible to communicate its message to us on its own terms. When we listen to what the authors of Scripture have to say, we learn that the God who made the world is holy, just, and good. This is the God who is the author of all things, and He has authority over all things. The second truth that the Bible communicates and that we need to understand is this. The world has rebelled against God. The writers of Scripture make clear that man has sinned against God, rebelling against His good commands. Mankind has thrown off God's authority and decided to live their own way. Third, because God is just and loving, He will not let sin go unpunished. He will not allow His creation to rebel forever. He will eventually execute His justice and judgment. The nations that we read about here in Deuteronomy 7 were worthy of judgment. And God in His mercy was patient with them. The wickedness of the nations was mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. 
It was mentioned from time to time in the books between Genesis and Deuteronomy as well. The truth is, is that the people of Canaan were ruthless and rebellious. Their idolatry and worship of false gods enraged the one true God, the God who made them and gave them life and breath. Their sexual immorality and promiscuity, which was seen in their idolatry, lied about the kind of loyal love that God demands from married people. Their child sacrifices. They literally sacrificed their children. Their child sacrifices preyed upon the weakest and most vulnerable among them. What kind of society perverts love and puts defenseless children to death? Could it be that God's punishment of wickedness is loving? The other day I heard a friend of mine make a salient point. Would we really think that God is loving if he said to Hitler, you know, I, I know you had many millions of Jews killed, but, but it's okay. I, I'm not going to judge you for that. Is that the kind of God that this world needs? No. Would we really think that God was just and loving if he allowed the atrocities of, of Joseph Stalin, of Pol Pot, or Mao Zedong go unpunished? No. It's precisely because God is loving that he punishes injustice, wickedness, and sin. Then the nations of Canaan had rebelled against him and committed terrible atrocities. Which leads to the fourth thing that we must understand about this mandate. God is bringing his judgment forward in time. And choosing to prosecute his judgment on the Canaanite nations through the people of Israel. God does not always execute his judgment right away. Sometimes he delays. Some of the injustices that we see in our world today, he is in his wisdom deciding to delay executing judgment upon. But sometimes he decides that a people or a person has rebelled against him long enough. And so he brings that people or person before his throne for judgment. God because he is the sovereign authority over all things in this universe, may choose in his wise providence to bring about his justice through instrumental powers on the earth. And what God is revealing here is that he has chosen to punish the peoples of Canaan through the people of Israel. This would not only serve God's purposes of justice, but it would also serve God's purposes of guarding the purity of his people. That's what we should understand by the words of verse 4. You see them there. For they would turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. You see, if, if the people of Israel were to preserve the peoples of Canaan, they would be led astray by them and soon become worthy of God's judgment themselves. God is not a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, as Dawkins suggests. Rather, he is holy, just, and good. That is why he commands Israel to wipe out the nations of Canaan. That is why he commands them to show no mercy, verse 2. To avoid any and all marriages with them, verse 3. And totally eliminate all forms of their worship throughout the promised land, verse 5. The people of Israel to have no political, economic, social, or religious connections with the people of Canaan. They weren't to have connections with them of any kind. Lurking beneath the surface of all of this is the sad truth that the people of Israel possessed hearts that were prone to the same sins 
as the people of Canaan. If anything remained, they would be led astray. Remember, God wants his people to be totally devoted to him. What about us? You know, when the New Testament picks up the imagery of warfare, it applies it to the people of God. It does so with respect to spiritual battles. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. When believers in Jesus are told to put something to death, we're told to put to death the deeds of the body. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Paul is talking about our sinful and fleshly desires. You know which ones those are, don't you? They're the ones that you hate and loathe. They're the ones that make you sick when you've made an alliance with them and sinned. Consider what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Listen to what he says, which is idolatry. Wasn't that what the people of Israel were to remove from the land? Idolatry? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the mandate that we have from God. We're to put to death idolatry in our lives. Just as the people of Israel were to eliminate idolatry in Canaan, so we are to eliminate idolatry in our lives. Paul goes on in in verses 6 to 10 of Colossians chapter 3 to say this. Paul writes, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This is part of our calling as Christians, as believers and followers of Jesus. This past week, I've been reading uh, John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. It's a classic Puritan work, and you can get your free copy on the book nook. I'd encourage you to pick one up. Mortification is just another word for killing. So Owen is famous for saying in, in this book, The Mortification of Sin, he's famous for saying, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Idolatry would lead Israel astray and sin will lead us astray. How do we put, how do we obey the mandate to put sin to death in our lives? We have to aim at the root of sin if we really wish to kill it. Think of it like a, a bad apple tree, right? We may go and remove all of the bad apples from the tree, but, but in time, the tree will simply produce more bad apples, won't it? We must aim at the root of our sin if we're to, to mortify it. What, what feeds our sin? What, what gives it growth and, and life? This is why, like Israel, we cannot leave any kind of connection with sin. What are you hiding or harboring that you need to bring into the light? What sins are you nurturing and nursing that need to be cleaned out? What what temptations do you need to confess to another brother or sister in Christ so that they can help you put sin to death? Don't worry about whether or not they'll think that you're a sinner. You are. They know that. And you know that. Don't worry about what they will think. Expose your sin to a brother or sister in Christ so that they can lead you to the great physician, to Jesus, who can help you cut it out and clean it out of your life. Putting sin to death does not 
mean being occasionally victorious over it? This is why I think we need sometimes the same brothers and sisters in our lives over a long period of time, over the long haul, so that we can be victorious over the sin, so they can know us and help us and walk with us. Brothers and sisters who, who walk with us for a long time can, can help us. They can watch our lives and they can say to us, look, Mike, I've, I've seen this before in your life. You're in danger of drifting if you continue down this path. But only someone who's known us for a long time can really see that in our lives. What, what kind of death blow does your sin need? Consider the danger and the end of sin. Pray and ask God to deliver you from the power of sin. Be mindful of those times and places and circumstances in which you are most tempted to sin. When you first notice temptation, fight with all your might or flee if there is the slightest chance that you will fail. Remember that Christ died for your sin and therefore you cannot live in it any longer. Call to mind scripture and and use it in the fight. That's what our Lord Jesus did to gain victory over Satan in the wilderness. Sing the truth of God. I think that the devil hates the songs of the saints. Pick a good hymn to memorize. Pick one that reminds you that you are a vile and guilty creature saved only through the Lamb. Pick one that reminds you that your sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross and that you bear them no more. You know, what is, what is most important in mortifying sin is not what you refuse to do, but what you choose to do. Not only do we need to positively kind of dislodge sin from our lives, but we also need to positively attend, give attention to our communion with Jesus Christ. Yes, we have to to uproot those green onions that look like grass, but we actually have to water and fertilize the real grass so that it'll grow. We have to attend to our relationship with Jesus through the reading of God's word and prayer and fellowship with believers. Spiritual negligence itself is really a choice, John Owen said. We may not resolve to be negligent, he went on to say, but if we choose ways that lead in that direction, that lead in the direction of negligence, we are responsible for our choice. Sometimes in our small groups or in our kind of one-on-one discipleship conversations, we make, we make confessions like this. You know, I haven't been reading my Bible and praying. These are good confessions to make. Confessions that we we should make. We should be inviting brothers and sisters in our life to to hold us accountable and encourage us in our walk. We should be making these confessions. We need to make them honestly. But let's also be honest with ourselves. We're choosing to be spiritually negligent by choosing other things. And we should not choose other things over communion with God. Do you know why? Do you know why we shouldn't choose other things over communion with God? Because in love, God has chosen us. That's why the God of the universe has said to us, I love you. I choose you. I choose communion with you. This is what we learn in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 16. 
This is the second point that we want to consider together. The, the motivation. Why should Israel drive out the nations? Why should we put sin to death? Because of God's electing love and covenant faithfulness. Let's consider our, our second point. The, the motivation. Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 to 16. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep you, keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that He swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew he will inflict on you he will inflict on you but he will lay them on all who hate you and you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you they your eyes shall not pity them neither shall you, you serve their gods for that would be a snare to you the motivation for Israel to take up this mandate is being chosen and loved by God. It is the same motivation given to the New Testament people of God. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. The truth that should have motivated the people of Israel to take up God's mandate is the same truth that should motivate us to take up our mandate to put sin to death. These 10 or so verses, they, they take us on an amazing roller coaster ride. Uh, they reach the heights of God's declaration of love in verses 6 to 9. They drop down into the valley of warning against disobedience in verse 10. They curve around the corner of reiterating the importance of keeping God's commands in verses 11 and 12, only to turn this sin-sick world upside down with promises of blessing that are reminiscent of the garden paradise before Adam and Eve sinned in verses 13 to 16. As I said, these verses begin with the marvelous declaration that these people, the people of Israel, the people who have tested God in the wilderness, the people who have grumbled against Him and disobeyed Him, are the very people He has set apart in love. 
That's what the word holy means. God has sanctified. He has set these people apart from other nations. God has distinguished them. God has chosen them, not for destruction, but for His delight. Being the fewest and smallest, they would have been the world's trash. But they were God's treasure. Those that the world would have treated with contempt, God would have delighted over. They were the people that God would rejoice over with singing. This is the very language that the Apostle Peter applies to the New Testament people of God when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Like the people of Israel, we're not so great, are we? Uh, we have our sins and struggles, don't we? We wrestle with the truth. We're, we're tempted to twist it when we talk. Sometimes we struggle with sinful anger. Our kids drive us nuts, and we drive our kids nuts. From time to time, we see words coming out of our mouths that we want to shove back in. Occasionally, bitterness, ingratitude, and impurity it wells up within us. We covet what we cannot have. If we're being really honest with ourselves, we think that the Apostle Paul must have been reading our minds when he said in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? God didn't love the Israelites because they were lovely. He doesn't love us because we're such great people. God doesn't choose to love sinners like us because we've done anything good. Or anything bad, for that matter. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9. I don't know if you, if you realize this, but God's love precedes the existence of Israel. God loved Israel before there was an Israel to love Him in response. God created an Israel to love. God made promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation and to lovingly bless his offspring. He didn't even look down the halls of history and say, you know what? I see that Israel is going to love me, so I'm going to love Israel. The plain and sobering fact of Israel's history is that they didn't love God as they should have. No, God loved Israel, and God loves us and because He chose to love us. That's why God loves. That's what verses 7 and 8 teach us. God made a promise to Abraham, and He determined to keep that promise for the blessing of Israel. God made a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And God has chosen to keep that promise in Jesus Christ. This motivation, this is the motivation we need to put sin to death and endeavor to live as a holy people. God has so generously and graciously loved us in His Son. It is God's covenant love and faithfulness that motivates our obedience. We obey because of who He is, the one true God. We obey because of who we are, those loved by Him. We purpose to be faithful to Him because He has been faithful to us. We see this in verse 9 where Moses connects this motivation to ethical implications. The people of Israel know that God is a loving and faithful God. And this means that they are to keep His commands. Still, there is a sobering warning in verse 10, isn't there? God will repay to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. God will love His people, but they should be careful not to take His love for granted. In fact, covenant disobedience and, and disloyalty will reveal that they never loved Him to begin with. And this will lead to punishment. 
God will not stand for his people so devaluing, disparaging, and dismissing his love. Brothers and sisters, we should be grieved by our sin. It surely grieves the Holy Spirit of the living God. In the words of John Owen, when we sin, we should say to our souls, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this how I pay the Father back for His love? Is this how I thank the Son for His blood? Is this how I respond to the Holy Spirit for His grace? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash and the Holy Spirit has chosen to dwell in? Through our sin, we spit in God's face when He has shown nothing but patient, perfect, and purifying love for us. Our God and Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in His beloved. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5. Our God has richly blessed us in Jesus Christ. And we keep His commands because we love Him. You'll notice that God promised to richly bless Israel too. The blessings of verses 13 to 16 are remarkable, aren't they? As we read about them, our minds should go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where God's world and God's garden were, were teeming with, with fruitfulness. The opening chapters of Genesis, in the opening chapters of Genesis, the, the animals and humanity are blessed and commissioned to be fruitful and multiply. They were provided with an environment that was free from suffering and sickness. And here God is promising to bless the people of Israel in such a profound measure that they will be reminded of the blessings of God that were found in the garden. These promised blessings would no doubt encourage the hopes of God's people, not only in the promised land of Canaan, but also in the hopes of a renewed world. Ultimately, God's people have always been looking forward to a better country, a, a heavenly one, as the writer of the Hebrews said. All of these blessings flow from the truth that Israel is especially loved by God. Since they are especially loved they were to be especially blessed. Blessed, as you can see in verse 14, above all peoples. Notice how Moses ties the motivation and the mandate back together in verse 16. It is because the people of God are especially loved by God that they are to obey God and drive out the nations before them. This, of course, sets the stage for Moses to communicate the means of accomplishing the mandate. But before we go there, we need to think just a little bit more about the practical implications of God's electing love and faithfulness. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we need to realize that God has chosen us. And His choice of us means something for us. It means that we ought to be humble. God did not choose Israel because they were great. He doesn't choose us because we're great. Listen to what Jesus says to His disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus says... You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, 
Now, this applies in special ways, of course, to Jesus' apostles, as they would be those who, who go and write divinely inspired scripture. But still, this, this applies to us too. We are commissioned to go and bear fruit. While we will not be those who, who write divinely inspired scripture, God's choice of believers ought to fundamentally orient our lives away from service to sin to service to Him and others. We have been chosen because of love. And we have been chosen to bear the fruit of love. That's what Jesus said. What is the nature of this fruit that we should bear? The fruit of righteousness and holiness that testifies and speaks to the truth to the watching world. What reveals that we are God's specially chosen and loved and blessed people? Now, well, if you want a summary of what that might look like, I think that you need only look back a few chapters to the Ten Commandments. Where love is embodied. There we see the fruit that God desires of us. Our God wants us to love Him first and love Him most. He, he wants us to express our love for Him in, in the way that He ordains is right. Love for God and the fruit of righteousness holds His name in high regard. Love for God entrusts our final and future rest to Him by resting in Christ today. We trust that God loves us and we love Him in part by honoring those He's put in authority over us. Love for God entrusts ourselves and we bear the fruit of righteous love in protecting and preserving the lives of those made in God's image. Love leads us to protect each other's chastity and relationships in heart and mind and body. We've also been called to bear the fruit of, of righteous love through contentment, as everything in this world is not ours for the taking, but His for the giving. What we have, we have as a trust from God, and we show our love for Him by not stealing what our neighbor possesses, but by giving thanks for what God has given us, and giving thanks for what God has given them, and sharing what we have with others. We show our love for God and for our neighbor when we speak the truth. Love is the first and chief grace that we are to display in our lives. We love, the Apostle John says, because he first loved us. God's love motivates our love. It enables our love. It also empowers our love. Which is what we need to turn and think about in our third and final point. The, the means. The means. Follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 17 to 26. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 17 to 26. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord, your God, will give them over to you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand 
and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. The means through which the people of Israel were to accomplish this mandate was through God's strength. How do believers in Jesus Christ overcome sin? Through God's strength. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul tells us, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Our means of victory over sin is nothing less than the strength that our God provides for the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. These verses are quite straightforward, I think. While they do bring out what we've already considered the mandate, they, they mainly focus in on the means of accomplishing that mandate. They begin, interestingly enough, they begin with Moses Answering a question that is almost certainly kind of percolating in the hearts and minds of his hearers. Moses effectively says to the children of Israel, I know what's in your heart. I know that you are afraid. I know that you're wondering how. How are we going to defeat these nations? When it comes to defeating sin and putting it to death, isn't this often what's in our hearts and minds? Sometimes our sin seems so large. We think, how? How am I going to defeat this? Isn't this often what's in our hearts? Aren't we sometimes so afraid of what it will really mean to struggle and put this sin to death? Sometimes sins have been a part of our lives for so long that they've shaped our patterns. They've shaped our, our paradigms, our ways of thinking. That's the kind of power sin has. It makes us think that we can't live without it. It makes us think, how, 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 how will my life go on with, without this? The truth is, is if we are God's people, we can't live with it. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're on the fence because um, you, you want to follow Jesus. You, you, you want a changed life, but you're afraid. Friend, I, I need to say some things to you. You need to know that you do not, you do not have the strength to clear sin out of your life. You do not have the strength to clear out your life that which leads God to condemn sinners. This is the very reason that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. To live the life that we have not lived. The life of sinless obedience to God the Father. Jesus came to bear the punishment and just judgment of our sin on the cross. Jesus came to be raised from the grave in victory over sin. So that by the Holy Spirit He could apply that victory to our lives, to His people. And forever welcome them into the promised land of heaven. Jesus doesn't just reform our lives. He doesn't just take the apples off of the tree. He doesn't just make a few behavioral changes. He gives us a completely new heart so that we begin to love Him more than our sin. Jesus heals us from the inside out. So I urge you to come to Him. 
I urge you to repent of your sin, to confess that you need to be saved by Jesus. I urge you to trust in him, believe in that he lived, died, and was raised from the grave so that you might be forgiven and healed by God. If you want to know more about this good news, talk with a a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Talk with me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this wonderful news that we can be saved from our sin and that Jesus can powerfully redeem us, removing sin from our lives. Moses gives the people of Israel a reassuring word there in verse 18. He says, Remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Remember how God saved you before, Moses says to the people of Israel. Remember what he has done. He's about to do it again. Remember how he displayed his power. He's going to display his power again. God is going to work so mightily mightily and so miraculously that the nations of Canaan are going to hide their faces from you. See, right now, you are a fearful people. You are afraid. But what God is going to do, He's actually going to make them afraid of you. Moses basically says, remember God's power. And as we think about how this applies to New Testament believers, we need to think about God's power displayed in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, is sin and the power of death greater than Jesus? No. He got up from the dead, proving that His power is greater. We need to think about how God has defeated our enemies at the cross. And we also need to remember what the Apostle John said to fearful Christians who who were thinking about the power of the devil. In John chapter 1 verse 4, we read John's tender words. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christian, whatever power you are facing, you need to remember that Christ's power through the Spirit is greater still. There's another reassuring aspect to to Moses' words, and that is this. Remember God's presence. Remember God's with you, Israel. You see that in verse 21 where he says, the Lord your God is in your midst. Too often we think that we're fighting sin alone. That's what Satan wants us to think. Satan wants us to think we're all alone. Too often we think we're fighting this alone. But the Spirit of Jesus Christ is within all who believe. Our Lord Jesus is with us through the work of the Holy Spirit. The one who defeated death and the devil is with us. God commanded Israel to clear away the nations. But did you notice in verse 22 that we're told, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you. And then there in verse 23, The Lord your God will give them over to you. And then in verse 24, He will give their kings into your hand. God is going to do this work. It will be accomplished through His strength. And yet, the people of Israel are going to be involved with this too, aren't they? Look at the middle of verse 24. We read, you shall make their name perish from under heaven. You shall make. And then there at the end of that same verse, we're told, you have destroyed them. So who will do this? God or or Israel? Well, yes, yes. God will display his strength through Israel's weakness and fear. 
They will, in the words of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Christian, this is how we defeat sin in God's strength. Through Him displaying His strength in our weakness. He works in our work. We don't stand idly by. No, we, we actually get to work. The people of Israel would have to cross over the Jordan. They would have to march around Jericho. They would have to attack the cities of Canaan. But it would be God strengthening them and securing the victory. And that is how it works with respect to our sanctification too. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, Paul's saying, obey in my absence. Listen to what he says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work. Give yourself to those things which are going to put sin to death. Pursue communion with God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. So while you're working this out, God is working in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We work and God works in our work. We work and God works in our work. Put sin to death through God's strength. God will give you the strength necessary to do it. Prayerfully depend upon Him as you go into battle. Confess your fear. Confess that you can't do it alone. Because you can't. Confess that you need Him. Because you do. Confess that you need Him to do it in and through you. And do you know that such honesty, such humility honors Him? Such honesty and humility honors God because in it we declare that we cannot save ourselves. If you were to read through the, the Old Testament kind of battle narratives, you would find these very sad episodes, these very sad events where the people of Israel from time to time try to go into battle on their own. And what happens every time they go? They try to go in their own strength. They lose. They're utterly defeated and ashamed. They lost every time, but when they depended upon God and asked Him for the victory, they never lost. And as we conclude, I'd like for us to think through our own dependence on Christ in the fight against sin. The thing that surprised me most about Deuteronomy 7 was verse 22. Uh, verse 22, the Lord your God will clear away all these nations before you little by little. Little by little, you will not make an end of them at once. Drive out little by little. So often, that's how it feels when we're battling sin, doesn't it? I'm not making much progress here. But we are making progress. Victory comes little by little. We want to be all better right away. But God's healing hand is so often slow, deliberate, as He delicately cleans out our wounded hearts. This draws us closer to Him, teaches us to trust Him as He heals us and helps us to see that the healing power of Jesus is not meant for one day. It's just not just meant for the day of our conversion, but the healing power of Jesus is meant for the whole of our lives. We are to obey God's mandate. We are to clear sin out, clean sin out of our lives. 
We are to do so because of his electing and faithful love revealed to us in Jesus. And we are to do it in his strength day by day as he little by little renews us in the image of Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer?